going to see, um, with today, Matthew, just want to stand up a second. Matthew is a teacher, a school teacher, a science teacher in the church community, and he is going to be bringing the word of God to us. You know, thanks, Matthew. When, when we talk about volunteers, it's great. People, you know, people who bring the word of God do uh, spend a lot of time and a lot of hard work preparing for it, says Dave. <laughs> but it's true. There's a lot of work goes into it. And I think, you know, when Matthew comes up in a minute, in around about a f- few minutes' time, just to bring the word, I want us to really be encouraging, smiling, uh, welcoming of him and receiving the word that he's got to bring first. But before he does that, we're going to see a video carrying on in our Bible series, going through the books of the Bible. This one is on Daniel. We're going to see the Bible project video on Daniel. Straight after that, uh, Matthew's going to come up and bring us a word. And please give him a good um, round of applause and welcome him when he comes to speak. George. Okay, thanks. Let's watch the video. The book of Daniel. The story is set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David, Daniel, who's later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refused to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted. They're thrown into a fiery furnace. But God delivers them from death, and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. 
They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God, and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a God, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts. And like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast identified as a really evil empire. And it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of Man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that, and that That's what these final three visions set out to explore. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7, but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is an image of the empire of the Medes and Persians, and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God, who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. 
Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin. Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire, and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John, the visionary who wrote the Revelation, could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings in their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong, and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. Well, good morning, uh, everyone. So um, the reason why I showed that video is just because I think it summarizes the book and all the themes which I'm not going to have time to touch on this morning um, really well. So, um, so I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I particularly like the, the map that they show. It draws it as it goes along and then it shows a nice sort of um, diagram and sheet. And I, I love diagrams and things like that. So that was, that was perfect. And then I found out that you can download them, all of them. So that's my wallpaper sorted. Um, okay, so... Picture the scene. Your homeland has been invaded by foreigners. Your hometown lies in ruins. You're separated from your family. And many that you know have died in the conflict. What's more, because you are a youth, intelligent, trainable, you and some others have been selected to live in the capital city of your enemies. The hatred you must feel, the loneliness, the bitterness of separation from all that is familiar. Because in this city, the people there do not do things the way that you do them. They speak another language. They have different laws and customs. And moreover, they do not worship your God, the one true God. Instead, they worship many gods, false gods, gods of silver and gold, idols made by their own hands. So perhaps you and your friends can lie low and weather this crisis. Perhaps you can isolate yourselves in a bubble with the other Jews who are in the same situation, and you can all be faithful together. Or perhaps not. Because you have been chosen to be indoctrinated with the ways of Babylon, trained for three years alongside magicians and conjurers, pagans. You are to be trained to serve the king who has set himself up as a god in his country. And they will be watching you to scrutinize your every move. It sounds uncomfortable. 
It sounds terrifying. And while many lament and concede that God has abandoned them, and you may be tempted to agree with them, you know the opposite to be true, that God is not far off and he has not abandoned you. Moreover, he has a plan. He has called you to such a time as this to bear witness for him in a foreign land, a pagan land, to make him famous and to give him glory. This was Daniel's predicament, and it is ours as well, since we, being citizens of heaven, dwell in a foreign land like Daniel. So the book of Daniel has many things to teach us. Now, in preparing for this preach, these words came to mind in the meantime. And actually, I felt like they've linked quite well with the song we were singing earlier in Christ Alone, because the last two, uh, some of the last lines of that song, till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Here I will wait for him and be patient for his promises to be fulfilled, regardless of the circumstances. So I want to, I'm going to keep using the phrase this morning, in the meantime, because one day we will dwell in an everlasting kingdom where there will be no more tears or pain or suffering, and we will live with our God. In the meantime, we will stand firm on his promises and bear witness until that time comes. Daniel and his friends show us this, and I'm going to share with you some examples. So we'll read some um, bits of scripture. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to chapter 1 in Daniel, and this serves as a nice introduction, as the video said, to the tension going on there. So chapter 1, I'm going to read the first um, eight verses. Um, Actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to start at verse, uh, verse 3. So it, it says what the video says, that, the, um, that Judah was attacked, um, Nebuchadnezzar uh, ex- exiled the people there, looted the temple, destroyed the temple, things like that. So the people of Israel aren't living in their own land anymore, they're living in exile. And then in verse 3 of chapter 1 it says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family, and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, defect <coughs> sorry, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. That's the people of Babylon, I believe. Um, the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appoint, uh, appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the persons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he gave the name uh, Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Okay, so in chapter one that we've read so far, Daniel and his friends uh, have been taken to a foreign land and trained in their pagan ways. Uh, Babylon, which in the scriptures is used to represent the sinful world, particularly in the book of Revelation, seeks to convert Daniel and the other youths um, to the ways of Babylon. And they do this through two means, which um, that... uh, piece of scripture shows us. So in verse 4 and 5, we see how they're educated in the ways of uh, the Chaldeans in their literature and language. And secondly, their names are changed. So first of all, consider their education. Now, I want to stress, first of all, um, being an educator myself, that, educate, that education is not a bad thing, um, of course. Um, some knowledge of the world is, um, is good because in knowing the world, we are able to witness to them better, I believe. Um, in our time, 
maybe this is being a student at university or an employee in the workplace, and uh, it involves training in the, uh, the knowledge which the world sees as being uh, valuable, um, because this knowledge allows us to be in a place for us to witness to people that we otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity um, to witness to. And so, like Daniel, um, we're able to make Jesus famous in the situation in which we are put. Um, so, people of God, I would say, seek to be educated and trained. Seek to be in a workplace with people who don't yet know God, so that through them, they, so through you, um, they can meet Him. Now, returning to the fact that the names of these three people, so that was their education, and the second thing I said was their names were changed. Um, so the names do mean something. They're, they're all sig uh, significant. I'll use one example. Um, their names uh, before reflected something of, the, uh, something of our God, um, something of... Um, Something, something of Yahweh, and, and part of that name was often in the name. So, for instance, uh, Meshach was his, was his second name, but he was formerly called Mishael. And Mishael, um, that L bit at the end is a shortened version of a title for God, Elohim, which means Lord. And um, so his name, Mishael, meant who is like God. But, they, but the Babylonians changed it to Meshach, which means who is as Aku is. So what they've done is they've replaced God with Aku, and Aku was a pagan moon god. So you can imagine how their identity was already being eroded, because as their name was said, it didn't involve their god anymore. It involved another god, which reminded them of the, the, the sort of foreign place they were staying. Um, so their identity was being eroded in that. So how did Daniel and his friends respond um, to this attack on their identity? Well, no doubt from the beginning, Daniel knows um, that um, their ways are different and doesn't wish to abandon the law of God. He sees that the pagans there want to divert him from that law and... Um, and to, and to their own way. And at some point, there's going, to be, um, there's going to be a conflict of interests. Seeing this as inevitable, Daniel chooses right away to be holy regarding the food that he eats. So he's offered food by the king, but he chooses um, not um, to accept it, maybe because the meat was sacrificed to idols or didn't adhere to the um, Levitical food laws. Um, that's by the by, and we may see this as trivial, but for Daniel, it's important um, because he's taking a stand immediately on something early on with regards to holiness, because he sees that if he takes a stand on that, he's not going to fall for something bigger later on, uh, something more significant. He wants to draw a line early at holiness rather than walk in the, uh, the line between holiness and sinfulness. Um, am I saying that we today need to restrict our diet to vegetables? No, but you're free to do so if you like. However, the principle remains that if we compromise our holiness as God's people in small areas, we'll find that further down the line we grow more tolerant towards sin. It's a slippery slope and it's one which Daniel sought to avoid. Um, maybe Daniel was thinking of these verses from Leviticus. So if you turn to that book with me, um, chapter 22, and... Um, I'm going to read from about halfway through verse 24. Maybe Daniel was thinking about this, where it says in uh, about halfway verse, 
through verse 24, I, uh, in Leviticus 22, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean birds and the clean, and you shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by birds, by anything which creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus you are to be holy to me, this is the key point, thus you are to be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. So Daniel sees himself and his friends as being a set-apart people for the Lord, living in a foreign land in order to witness to them. Um, okay, you can sit, find some New Testament examples of that as well. Um, so if you're making notes, you might want to jot down and look up later. 1 Peter 1 verses 13 to 16 and Matthew verses uh, Matthew 5, verse 16. I think those are relevant New Testament verses to support that. Um, it's encouraging to see that even though their diet is lacking, later on you read that Daniel and his friends actually have a better description than the others who did not change their diet, and that's in verse 15 of Daniel chapter 1. Because of the favor God has towards them, this, uh, this happens. Moreover, in verse 20, they are found 10 times wiser than their pagan contemporaries, um, which are magicians and um, conjurers. So, In the meantime, while they are waiting for God's kingdom to come, Daniel and his friends cling to holiness. And that is something we should do uh, as well. So let's advance to chapter 3. And I'm going to read read bits of this. It's a famous story you may um, have uh, have heard of. Um, And it's one example where, in Daniel, where the identity of the Jews is challenged. And it doesn't refer to Daniel, but it features his friends instead, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you keep in notes, just make notes, make a tally of how much their name comes up because it gets a little repetitive, but, um, but it is interesting. Um, so let's read the chapter, and I will... That was a joke, by the way. Don't actually keep a tally. Only I am that sad to do those things. Um, never mind. Um, so let's read the chapter, and I'll give my commentary. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was six cubits, and his, uh, sorry, was 60 cubits, and it's with six cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura to, uh, in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the councillors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the, everyone really was important, uh, to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, skip to verse 4. Um, then the herald loudly proclaimed to you the command is given, uh, O peoples, nations, and men from every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of, every kind of instrument, basically. You are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up, but whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all the kinds of music, all the people's nations of every men, of every language, fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So, essentially, Nebuchadnezzar wants everyone to worship his statue, which is a metaphor for worshipping him, because he had committed the most fundamental of sins, which was setting himself up as God in his place. And like Adam, believing that he knew better than the creator of the universe for how his life uh, should run. This is pretty obvious idolatry. However, it's unlikely today in our culture that you will see someone set up an idol like that and say, you've got to bow down and worship it or you're going to be thrown into the fire. Instead, we have a more sinister, more invisible idolatry today, which I would argue is possibly more dangerous. Um, um, so we don't tend to worship statues. 
Instead, we worship ourselves. Well, we don't as the people of God. We worship God, but that, I'm saying that's what the world does. Um, and this can be manifested in all sorts of ways. It can be the worship of objects, material things, the worship of experience, the worship of sex, the love of money, um, even in worshipping celebrities because ultimately we're just saying we want to be like them. We're coveting their lives. And it doesn't even have to be celebrities. It could be someone else that you know and I really want to be like them. But when you're doing that, you're rejecting God because you're rejecting yourself and God has created you you're rejecting yourself made in God's image. So um, essentially all these things are just a rejection um, of God. Um, and that's the kind of idolatry that we're faced with today. So see the, the parallel from that, from the reality and the scriptures uh, that, we, uh, that we see. Because when we worship ourselves, what we're saying is we are enough by ourselves, our own skills and our own abilities. God with his endless riches is not. And that's totally not true. We totally need him. So beware of the invisible idolatry of this age. So we see in the scripture that everyone was worshipping the statue. But Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego choose not to. And here's what happens. So in verse 8, for this reason, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn and all the other instruments is to fall down and worship the golden instrument, but, uh, golden instrument, golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image I have set up? Notice in that last verse that he says that you do not serve my gods or the worship of the golden image that I have set up because Nebuchadnezzar Using these words, he's demonstrating his own narcissism that he is the center of the universe and not God. And ultimately, that shows his rejection of God. Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn and all the other instruments, um, and you uh, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? They obviously have, he hasn't, obviously hasn't heard of our God then, has he? Um, but he will do soon. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to your king that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. I just love the boldness of these three men telling the most powerful man in the world, in the known world at the time, a powerful dictator, that they're not going to follow his orders. And he certainly was powerful. And they outright refused him. Um, and they t because they were able to do this because earlier on, they said, we're not going to eat the food that you give us because we don't think it's right to. So they took a stand on holiness. And so now they are able to look the king in the eye and say, we're not going to commit this idolatry. We're not going to abandon our gods because they, they took a stand um, earlier on. Um, 
Because after all, as we've said before, compromise is slow and steady. Nobody falls in one day. Also notice that, um, that they say that they, they basically, they, they accept that God may not deliver them in this situation in verse 17. Although they do acknowledge that he is fully able to, say, uh, to save them, they think it's entirely reasonable that he, in fact, might not save them from that predicament and that they may die in that fire. But it doesn't matter because this life is not the end and they will not forsake their God regardless of the circumstances. They love him more than their own lives. And I don't know if we really appreciate that in the West. I know I certainly don't. And sadly, for some Christians in the world, persecution of this sort is commonplace. So going back to verse uh, 19 now, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. His facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually hinted. Uh, Sorry, heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. These men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes. They were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent, the furnace had been made extremely hot. The flame of the fire slew those men who, were carried up, who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his officials, Was it not three men we, found, uh, we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, oh, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods which I've heard it said before that this is a Christophany, an early incarnation uh, of Jesus um, before the New Testament. Um, Anyway, verse 26. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Uh, Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men, that the fire had no effect on the bodies, uh, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the the smell of the fire even come upon upon them. Wow, praise God for that. Yeah, it is a a miracle, and this really happens, so we are right to praise God and clap him for that. Um, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants and put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from... What a lovely guy. Shall be torn limb from limb and their house is reduced to a rubbish heap and as much as there is no other god who is able to deliver in, in this way. You've got to admire his heart, but his means, we're not sure about. So the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. So they took a stand on what they believed. In the meantime, they chose to worship their God only and no other, and God saved them miraculously. And not only that, that in witnessing the miraculous, Nebuchadnezzar begins his journey, his own personal journey of salvation, and he acknowledges the God of the Jews. He confesses him in verse 26 as the most high God. He doesn't mention his own gods anymore. He he, he acknowledges God. I'm not going to read any more um, scripture, um, uh, blocks of scripture like that, but um, in chapter 4, read it yourself, Nebuchadnezzar has a more powerful encounter uh, with God. He's warned in a dream which Daniel interprets that he needs to acknowledge God, um, acknowledge that heaven rules, uh, not, not Nebuchadnezzar, but 
he refuses, as the video said, he turns into a wild, uh, he doesn't turn it, he, he acts like a wild animal, but then he repents and he comes to his senses, acknowledges God, and then his fortunes are uh, restored. And it, so it shows that the, the witness of the lives, by, by their own lives, the witness um, of their God has an effect on Nebuchadnezzar. And he, um, the most powerful man in the world, does uh, turn to God. But unlike Nebuchadnezzar, his son in chapter 5 does not do the same thing. He rejects God. And um, he, uh, despite knowing how, what happened to his father, he, um, he rejects God. He even uses the, the, the vessels from Jerusalem, the, um, from the temple that were used for, uh, for, for worship of God at, at the time. And he, and he uses them for, for his own um, debauched uh, party and it's at that time where um, Daniel interprets the warning there's the writing on the wall Daniel interprets it Bel uh, Belshazzar just blatantly ignores it and he, he he seems happy with Daniel but he like he gives him nice clothes he gives him a promotion he gives him a ring but he ignores God and he dies that very night which contrasts the way that the these two kings respond uh, to God uh, in that way so um, based on that Daniel teaches us that kings rise and fall and um, some acknowledge God and some do not. Aggressive authorities and brutal regimes do not last forever. Daniel makes it clear through the visions he receives in chapter 8 that kingdoms will rise and fall. Uh, his visions are specific to historical events, but they also tell us not to fear such powers in our time since they will inevitably fall. But one kingdom will endure forever, the kingdom of God. So we do not need to fear Daniel's attitude in chapter 9 is a picture of what ours um, should be. Um, he, reads, um, he reads the book of Jeremiah, particularly chapter 25. Um, he probably didn't have chapters, but if you want to know where, where that was, then it's in chapter 25 of Jeremiah. And he sees that the promise of God, that after 70 years, God will judge Babylon and the people will be allowed to return to, um, to their own land. Um, and since that time is nearly upon him, Daniel prays into it. And if you read the chapter, his prayer is so full of passion and emotion and dedication. He takes that word that Jeremiah has spoken and he wrestles with it. He repents, he intercedes for his sinful people. So he's reading the equivalent of his Bible and he's praying into the promises of God. And in the meantime, that should be our practice as well, to take the promises of God and wrestle with them, to pray with them and say to God, make this so he is not idle he doesn't let his 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 bible at the time gather uh, gather dust neither should we he prays for the kingdom to come as it is in heaven which is what we should do we should pray over the words that god has spoken over us and not just let them lay idle that's what god wants us to do so daniel anticipated a return to the land of his ancestors but god shows him a vision in chapter 7 of the coming messiah uh, this, um, showing that actually there is going to be a return to the land, but this is just a picture of something even bigger. Um, he also gives Daniel a vision in chapter tw uh, 12 of the kingdom um, uh, where the, the dead are resurrected to everlasting life, which, obviously, which should sound familiar to some of you. So let's just read those two verses in chapter 12 of, um, of Daniel. Um, just in verses 2 and 3, it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, those to everlasting life, 
but to the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will uh, shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So this is more than just people relocating to a land. It's a kingdom that will last forever where we will not die anymore. So this is what Daniel expected and we should expect it too. And let's just read um, a bit from Daniel chapter 7 briefly to see what he saw. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 and, um, and 14. I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Praise God for that. Um, However, Daniel knew that the time of fullness was not yet. So in the meantime, he does these things. He doesn't compromise with regard to holiness. He prays even when it is illegal. That's a story which I didn't read, which is in, um, which is in chapter 6. Particularly verse 10 is where he chooses, despite the king's decree, to keep praying. In doing so, he witnesses, in doing these things, he witnesses to pagans around him, even to those in authority, And we should pray that we should have that privilege to witness to those in authority as well. He grows in favor with those authorities and makes himself useful with the talents that God has given him uh, uh, by using his ability to interpret dreams, um, for instance. So with your talents, whatever they may be, make yourself useful, uh, people of God. um, Make yourself useful so you can witness um, to those around you. So in the meantime, he stays faithful to God even even when he is threatened with the lion's den and his friends are threatened with the furnace. In the meantime, waiting for this promised kingdom, he stays faithful to God, as should we. This kingdom we wait for is one where we will live with God as his people, where there are no tears or pain or sickness or suffering, and we eagerly anticipate it. The story, Daniel's story, as we read it in the Bible, may be over, but it isn't over with us. And we echo the last lines of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.